Well, happy Father's Day to all of you. Oh, almost knocked the table over. It's good to see you all here today. So we have the honor of speaking on Father's Day today. And um, yeah, we wrestle a little bit how to exactly do this. Do we share one sermon that we do half and half in? Do we share two messages? What exactly are we doing? And as we prayed and as we were thinking about what this will look like, we came with a, actually you came up with the idea, I think. Was it me? Was it me? I can't remember. <laughs> it's all a fog. But uh, we came up with the idea of just, why don't we share our favorite passages in the Bible that talk about being the father, uh, that, that teach us about what God looks like as a father, because the Bible is filled with these, with these titles that are given to God, good father. We sang about it today. So what does that actually mean, and what does that actually look like? So we thought, why don't we today just share our favorite stories and kind of draw some conclusions for you, and hopefully they'll, they'll inspire us to think of God in a new way, and also inspire us to think about what it looks like for us to be, uh, for, those, for those other fathers, what does it look like for us to be fathers? Um, but before we begin, we do recognize, and I know Darcy has mentioned this, and Pastor John has said this already, we know that the title father carries a lot of different things for each person in this room. We know that many of us are celebrating and rejoicing in this, others are mourning, Others are asking what if questions, and that's okay. That's really okay to hold that tension. It's okay for us to enter into hard conversations with uh, titles because they carry different meanings for us. And it's okay to engage with that, and it's okay to see that God surpasses all those things and offer us something more, even when we've had challenging parents in our life. So this is kind of one of the things we do want to address, and, uh, and I'll let you, Jessica, take it away, and you start all with right. your favorite story. Okay, passage. well, it's more of a passage. Um, and it's, it's kind of like uh, just a bunch of thoughts going through my head from the last week's preaching and teaching on prayer, the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit, and now we're in a series of belonging. And I've just really appreciated the teaching and preaching from this stage these last few weeks. And as I've been reflecting on these sermons and considering fatherhood today, all of these things popped up into, in one passage for me that kind of hits all of those uh, points that we've been talking about. And um, this is, I mean, this is a wonderful thing about the Bible and why reading it never gets old. The more you read, the more you see that everything is so carefully crafted and interwoven together by the original authors and um, by the Holy Spirit. And um, like reading the Bible is a lifelong journey. So if you're, if you're not there yet, that's okay. That's part of the, that's part of the journey. But as you read, um, you become immersed in this story of God over the years and the decades, and you'll find that your imagination starts to change. And we're no longer reading to interpret what the Bible says to me. We are in the story. Yeah. And God's story becomes our story. And God's imagination becomes our imagination. And, and it's then that you'll start to notice these connections everywhere. So the passage I'm going to look at is Luke 11. And let me set the scene. Um, this is just a small piece of Jesus' teaching. It's in like in a section of larger teaching. And um, the disciples are observing Jesus praying. And one of them asks him, teach us how to pray. And this is where Luke introduces his shorter version of what we call the Lord's Prayer. 
And I'll just ask you to notice that in the prayer, um, he addresses God as Father. And then hold on to that uh, one for later. So I'm just going to read verse 11, or from, from Luke 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus follows this with a few examples of when we come to God asking for what we need in prayer. So you'll see that the connections with uh, the prayer series popping up here. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. So, a few things to notice. The example, uh, the relationship example Jesus uses here is that of friendship. He asked the disciples to consider what they might do for a friend, but then he double backs and reminds them that in this instance, the friend doesn't give his buddy the bread because they're friends. The rudely awoken neighbor gives his friend the bread because of his impudence, basically uh, persistence. He just wants to go back to sleep. So Jesus begins by explaining that relationships aside, persistent asking usually gets you what you want. So it's kind of like he's taking the disciples step by step. Um, but then he raises the stakes. So with each step, he's raising the stakes. Now he switches from your friend down the street to the intimate relationship between father and child the relationship he models for his disciples in prayer. Remember, he calls God Father. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? The answer is obvious, right? So obvious, why does he even ask? Uh, but I get it. As a teacher and frankly as a parent, I'm pretty sure I've asked these types of questions before. They almost seem a little passive aggressive. <laughs> they, they expose the faulty notions behind the beliefs of the hearer. So for example, in my art room, I might ask the question, when you use a knife to spread peanut butter, which of you puts it back in the drawer without washing it? It happens. <laughs> Why then 
would you use a paintbrush and not wash it thoroughly before you place it back in the bin? These conversations, they happen often. It seems like good questions to ask your children as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Our children. <laughs> <laughs> They're not even in here today, so. <laughs> Um, so these questions expose our illogical behavior, right? You say you believe this, but what do you actually do? So you see me calling God my father. So what do fathers do? The next verse. If you then, who are evil, I know that sounds harsh, but it basically means like you're not a perfect parent. I, you're not a perfect father figure and mother figure. You mess up. You're not perfect like God is perfect. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But notice the little switch that Jesus does there. He doesn't mention good gifts or he doesn't mention bread. That's what he was talking about before, right? And indeed, this is what Jesus taught his disciples to pray for in verse 3. Wouldn't that be consistent? It would make sense for him to say, um, even though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts or bread to you? Now, let me share a story that explains this further. I've always loved clothes. And, but I'm a, I'm a thrifty person and generally happy with simple things. So it's kind of like my one Achilles heel. Um, and this was a thing for me early on. I would dress up in my grandma's jewelry. I love dressing up in interesting outfits from our family's dress-up box. Um, I would even raid my dad's closet, actually, in the 90s and grab, like, a couple ties and a and, uh, button-up shirt uh, to wear to school. Um, I would sew clothes for my Barbie dolls because the stuff in the stores just wasn't fashionable enough. What I wanted them to wear just didn't exist. Uh, so when I hit my preteen years, I, of course, started asking my parents for, you, you 90s kids will remember, Club Monaco sweaters, Doc Martin boots, Ikea jeans. Who remembers Ikea jeans? Basically the things kids wear today. <laughs> and they weren't the same price point as San. Do you guys remember San? <laughs> but so instead of buying me these pricey items, my dad made a deal with me. He said, I will increase your allowance, but now you will have to budget for the things you want and also the things that you need. You can buy your pricey sweaters and but you're also going to have to make sure that you have stuff left over to buy winter boots and your school supplies. And from then on, my dad started having conversations with me about finances. He taught me about saving and investing money. I mean, he tried his best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But he did. He gave me financial literacy. Um, he helped me put away some of my money in the summer, save for a trip. Um, yeah. So instead of just giving me the thing that I wanted, that sweater, those pairs of boots, he actually gave me another level in our relationship. So back to the passage. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So now I'm going to make two observations from this final verse in the passage. The first is what Jesus is implying about fathers and father figures. And this will go to inform the second point, uh, which is his point about the Holy Spirit. So first, fathers and father figures, those of you in this room, I'm going to speak to you now. So our, our culture tells us that being a man or being a good father or father figure means being productive, being a provider, being a hero being strong physically and emotionally, taking responsibility, not just for yourself, but for others, sucking it up and getting on with business, rolling up your sleeves and getting it done. A lot of this sounds really good, right? Like maybe some of you are suppressing the urge to nod your heads they're pretty, pretty popular things to say in our culture today, right? They come across as pretty positive. But brothers, these notions can be a really unrealistic burden on men. And, and the problem with that is that it's just a small piece of who you are. Um, and it's also the story told from the wrong starting point. Ultimately, your worth is not in any of these things. The ground of your worth is you and your presence in the world. And I know that's less satisfying than working for your worth, which is a big temptation, I think, for a, for a lot of men. And I think about it a lot, like being a mom of, uh, of boys and, and seeing, seeing the struggles of the young men in my, my classroom. You know, when, when you lose someone, when you lose a father figure, um, where, you, where you lose um, part of who they were, through, who they are through disability, you, what you miss is not their help building the deck, the save, their savings or investments, their gifts at Christmas, or their know-how, whatever that know-how is. You would trade it all for their presence. Because it's not what he gave you. It's him. It's him. Friends, the greatest gift we give to the world is our presence. And our actions flow out of that. 
but we need to understand that first. God declared Adam very good before he did a single thing. Brothers, it's ultimately who you are that you give your children and those who look up to you. No illness, no ability or disability, no underemployment, no heroic action, no knowledge, no financial stability, no mental health touches your worth. Friends and sisters, can we support our brothers in this? Yeah. Yeah. But back to the passage. When we ask for things from Father God, what does he give us? His loving presence. His Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that we stop asking for what we need for our daily needs or even what we want in our prayers. But like my father and your father, our heavenly father desires not just to provide for us. He desires the next level in our relationship. And even more, the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, God's loving presence and his creative action in the world. Not just God with us, God in us. God's not just content to be with us in our daily lives. He wants to renew us from within as new creations in him. And this is where our metaphors for God begin to break down and the image of the Father reaches its ends because we see God's desire for us surpasses even the very best of our earthly fathers. Thanks, Patience. Yeah, God offers us his loving fatherly presence. Uh, what a gift. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, oh, man, it's hard to go into. This is probably plenty of sermon right there. Um, but the story I want to share, the passage that's one of my favorite uh, parables in, in the Bible, stories in the Bible, is actually one of the first uh, texts that I preached on here at Circle seven, some seven years ago when I was first hired as a pastor here. It's the text that I preached on first, and so it's kind of interesting to come around to today. And my, uh, my favorite story of Jesus teaching on the Father is actually just a few chapters later in Luke 15. Those of you who are familiar with that, with uh, with that chapter, it's a chapter covering a whole bunch of lost things. And in verse 11, we come to the story of the prodigal son. Now, those of you who are Bible readers are very familiar with the story. And you're like, oh, yeah, the prodigal son, of course, there's a good father involved there. There's a son that goes off. Um, but even those of you that might have never read the story, you've kind of heard that prodigal son saying, right? You've heard of it's a son that does something that's not good. At the very least, we know that saying. We use it all the time. But it's one of my favorite stories, and I'm not going to read it word for word. I'm going to just retell it in, uh, 
Paul Morgan paraphrase today and kind of just draw out some things for us to note. But I'd encourage you to read it. It's in Luke 15, starting verse 11. Um, goes to like verse 32, so it's like 21 verses. It's very short. I would read it even twice this afternoon since it's Father's Day because there's a lot of stuff for us to notice and pick up there. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating story. So I'm just going to retell it for you and just grab some things out of it. Um, it's a story that's interesting because there's a lot of contrast and dynamic things happening in it. And based on where you are in your journey, in your faith, in your life, you might be drawn to different parts of the story. But it's interesting to see the whole picture together as well. There's an interesting contrast between two brothers. That's really important for us to notice. We call it the prodigal son, but there's actually two sons involved. And there's a father involved in the story. So the story, for those of you that know it and for those of you that don't, begins with a younger son uh, coming to his father and asking for his portion, his inheritance from the father right there and then. Now, this is an incredible request, as you know in the story. Not only is it an insulting ask, because this is something the son would get when the father would pass away, but here he is asking his father for this, uh, for this inheritance right here and now. So there's this callousness and heartless involved in this, in this request from the younger son. And what he's saying really, in effect, especially for the, for the listeners who are listening to Jesus, it's a very, it's similar culture to ours, but also very different culture. What they're hearing is this. They're hearing the son say, give me now the part of the estate that I will get anyways when you die and, and just give it to me right now, this moment. And Jesus highlights that the younger son is basically suggesting, I wish you were dead. Like, give this to me now, Dad, because I wish you were dead. Because I want that. I want the wealth. I want the prestige. I want the estate. But I don't want you. So give this to me now. And there's just so much going on in this request. So the, the original listeners to this story, uh, w the Middle Eastern father who would, have, who would have experienced this, the listeners would expect this father to actually drive out the son to violently kick him out, boot him out, yell at him, beat him up, make a scene of him for this insulting request. That's actually what would have been happening in, in that story. The audience would have been all perking up and going, okay, this kid's going to get it, right? We kind of know the story, so we know where it's going, so we, we sometimes tune that part out. But it's really important to know that the expectation here is the father's very upset because he's just been told, like, I wish you were dead. Um... Another interesting point that we can sometimes miss is that the father, um, to do this act of giving, sometimes because I live in Canada and I think of this story, sometimes I assume the father's wealthy here, which he is. So I assume he's going to go to the bank, or actually today he's just going to do e-transfer and send a whole bunch of money to his son. And it's insulting and annoying, but he's just going to send him the money. But that's actually not the case. The father doesn't have bags of gold in his, in his estate and money. For him to do this, for him to give this large sum to his younger son, would mean that he would have to go and sell a whole bunch of his land, sell a whole bunch of his cattle or sheep or whatever he had, livestock. He would have to sell one-third of it because the older son would get double portion. That's just how things worked. And the younger son would get one portion. Um, so he would have to sell one-third of his estate to do this. It's not an easy ask. It's not like, okay, it's upsetting, but here's some money, I'll e-transfer e it to you. This is actually a lot of work for him, and work that's involved with humiliation. Because just like then, and those of you that are farmers would get this now, land and you were tied in your identity. 
So to give up your land, to give up your livestock is insulting, humiliating. It's a loss of identity. It's a loss of standing in your, in your community. It, it, there's just so many things that are happening here. It's a humiliating request. But what's also important to notice is how humiliating the father acts. Because he doesn't get mad. He doesn't drive the son out. He doesn't yell at him. He simply complies. And we often hear that, or at least I often hear that as like, oh, what a nice dad. But actually, to the culture listening to me initially, it would have been disgraceful and reckless that he actually obliged to this. He's actually now being positioned by Jesus in the eyes of the hearers as a villain in some sense. What do you mean he's going to just oblige to this? What do you mean he's going to just do this? This is reckless. This is senseless. How could he do this? And we need to see that part of the story here because that's a crucial and central part in this story that the father is acting reckless. Tim Keller, he's an author and a pastor in his book, The Prodigal God, puts it this way. What the younger son is asking his father to do is to tear his life apart. And the father does. And so the younger son takes his portion and we read that he squanders it. He runs it to the ground. He, he, his life is in ruins. He, he, whatever he does, he, he loses it all. And he's now at a bottom. He runs through the money. He's looking for work now. He has nothing going on for him. He's even agreeing to feed pigs, also important part of the story, because uh, for the Jewish people, the law said, cursed is he who feeds swine. Um, and so... The illustration there, there's nothing, just a throwaway statement. Jesus is saying, this guy has hit an absolute lowest of the low, bottom of the bottom moment in his life. He's not surviving. This is horrible. He had burned bridges. He has torn his father's life apart. And now, in the story, we read that he says, I will go home. This torn apart house that he left, for him, in this lowest of the lowest moments, is still home that's also really important to notice because home is not primarily a place it is a relationship and though he did all the things to tear the relationship apart in his lowest moments he sees that there's still a hope of a relationship now in your mind don't jump to the rest of the story because you know it those of you that do you know where this is going but put yourself in the father's spot you see this young adult who has made a muck of things, tore your life apart, destroyed things, went off who knows where, and now you're looking down the road and you see your young adult son returning. I know you're all gracious here. But honestly, what is running your mind? This better be good. Right? Let's be honest. This better be good. He better be coming back and kissing my feet and apologizing, and I'm not even sure if I'm going to accept it. Right? In our lowest of the lows, in our darkest moment, this is if somebody tore your life apart, would you not be suspicious? Would you not be even thinking, well, maybe I'll give him a trial. I'll see if he's really learned his lesson. I don't want him to use me again. But that's not the case. The father, we read in the text, has compassion on him. He acts recklessly again. He runs to his son. A 
again, an important note, that running for a man of esteem, a man of prestige, would have been very shameful and reckless. The father recklessly runs to his son. And in the best Greek text that we can have, we read that the father doesn't even give him a chance to explain himself. He breaks in before that and puts a robe around him, which stands for honor. And he puts his, his ring on his finger, which stands for authority and power of attorney. Without hearing any excuses, without hearing anything that's happened, this young man who tore his father's life apart, the father recklessly, run, humiliatingly runs to him, puts a robe on him, and puts a, a ring on his finger. He doesn't test him. He doesn't wait to, for him to prove himself. He acts recklessly. The reckless, disgraceful actions of the father to restore his wandering son to a place of honor and family. So let us stop just there for a second and see the truth so far in this parable. What I'm proposing is that this story should never have been actually called the prodigal son. It should have always been called the prodigal father. He's the reckless hero here. Tim Keller coins the title prodigal God. We see that the hero is the prodigal father. Prodigal means reckless, and it is the father who seems to act far more reckless in his actions towards his son in his reckless love and grace. It's so reckless, it's actually unthinkable. I think because so many times we've read the story, we just think, oh, God is so gracious. But this is a reckless act that costs. It costed him. His life one-third was torn apart. And secondly, the story tells us um, that this father is a forgiving father, a prodigal forgiving father, the father who must have been waiting and watching, looking down the road, watching for his son to return. When he came, he forgave him with no buts or ifs. He simply again acted recklessly in his grace and forgiveness. He acted as if the youngest son actually has never sinned against him. We learn quickly that Heavenly Father's posture towards us is that reckless love. Do you see what Jesus is teaching us about the Heavenly Father? No matter what our experience with our fathers was, good, great, bad, frustrating, Jesus shows us a reckless Father who will love us and run to us and put a robe around us and say, you are mine, come home and throw a feast. But that's not the end of the story. We tend to think that it is, but it's actually only the first part of the story. It is in this moment that in enters the older brother. When he hears the feast and celebrating, and when he hears what it's for and what it's about, he's angry and refuses to go in to celebrate and join the feast. Forget what you kind of know about this part of the older brother. Let me just show you what he's actually doing. You see, it is now his turn to tear the family apart. He's now not wanting reconciliation, restoration, or celebration. He's actually tearing the family apart and saying, I don't want any part of this. I will not go in. I will not be part of this family. I'm the heir. I don't want to be in this with, with this son of yours. He doesn't deserve it. I do. I have done everything right. This force is now the father to recklessly, in grace, come out. 
The oldest son often for people when we read this represents the Pharisees or the, or the religious people who would have been hearing the story. Those that see the world in very black and white ways. Those who would rather see a sinner destroyed than saved. Certain things stand out about him. His attitude shows that his years of obedience to his father have actually been years of grim duty and not joy. Not a loving service. His attitude is one of utter lack of sympathy. He refers to his, to his brother as, not as my brother, but as the son of yours. He's already distancing himself. He's already tearing this apart. And look what he accuses his young brother. He says, this, this son of yours who was with prostitutes. Have you noticed that nowhere before in the story that's actually mentioned that the son is doing this? In fact, this older brother's proclamation that this, his, son, his brother is with prostitutes is probably something he's dealing with his own heart. Have you noticed when people accuse you of something that you haven't done, it's often something that they're struggling with? Think about that. His sin is hid, hidden, and he's angry. But his younger brother's sin is exposed. So fr friends, ultimately, this story isn't about either brother. It is and it isn't. This story is ultimately about a father who is gracious to run to a son who left him and tore his family apart, or to a son who's so rigidly religious and so stuck in his black and whiteness that he, does, he can't even love others outside of his own, inside his own family and is willing to tear his family apart. This story is centrally about a reckless father, reckless in his love to care for both brothers. Friends, I want to point out one more thing. We often call this story, and I know even in the Bible it says the story of the prodigal son, and we want it to be about the younger brother. You know why we want it to be about the younger brother? Because we love gossip. We love to expose the reality TV of people screwing up and doing things so we can elevate ourselves and puff ourselves up and look down on people and say, look how, look at that guy, look what he's doing. This story isn't about the old younger son. It is and it isn't. This story is about a God who will love you despite of all the things you do and will still love you even if you judge those that do. It is the reckless love of Jesus that this story is about. This story is all about a loving father who is so reckless to his both prodigal sons who are willing to tear families apart and is willing to bring us back together. Friends, I'll say in this room, I guarantee you, there's some of us who are the younger brothers or who have gone through that journey, and there's those of us who have been the older brother. And I want to tell you that your Heavenly Father looks at both of you, or some of you might have gone through both journeys. You might have had the younger son experience, and then you became religious, and you became the older brother. You started judging people that used to do what you used to do. You might have gone through the whole loop there. And what I want to tell you is your Heavenly Father loves you so much that he will wait on you and look at that road and wait and wait and then run to you, or he will run to you when you're refusing to come and hug you. This is the reckless love of our Father. And isn't this the Father that we all long for? Isn't this all of those of us that had a great Father or had a painful experience with a Father long for a Father like this? This is what Jesus introduces us to, what kind of Father we have. As Jessica shared in her story, a present Father, a loving Father, and a forgiving Father. In the face of a love like that, we cannot be anything else but lost in wonder love and praise for a father who is, will run to us and throw us a feast 
I want to encourage you today, wherever you are in the trajectory of those two stories, or in the tension in between, there's a father that is waiting on you, that is running to you, and who wants to throw a giant feast, and you are welcome into it. Recklessly welcome into it. No buts or ifs. Recklessly invited into this story. This is the good father that we have. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you for Jesus sharing to us who you are like. That despite of all the things we've done, despite our desires to earn your love, despite of walking away, despite of all things we do, you recklessly and graciously love us. Thank you for that gift. Father, I thank you for your presence here with us. I thank you for your goodness. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.